Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are, uh, let's see, we're talking about, I believe this is the final book of our original planned lineup. And Karen, this is one of the ones that you suggested. This is one of the ones I suggested. In a way, it's one of the first ones I thought about putting on my list. It's called Ghosts by Cardella Forbes. It was published this year, just in August, by People Tree Press. And it, to me, it ties into both the Rainmaker's mistake and to the um, to my bones and my flute, the middle holzer, in a sense that it very much is rooted in the not just in the Caribbean in the sense of location, but also in Caribbean literature in the sense of its context and the particular tropes that it plays with and so forth. I I wanted. I wanted someone else to read it who was not a Caribbean person also to see if they could see what I was seeing, basically. And, well, should I, should I give a summary now? Yeah, let's start with the summary and then we can dive on in with a queer conscience. Good. Cool. It's, it's hard to give a summary of this book <laughs> yeah. because it's almost the opposite of The Sparrow in the sense that The Sparrow had lots of lots of detail of plot and every little detail was important. This one rely this story relies more on the characters, more in a way on the setting, and the plot is 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 extremely simple. There is a a death of a son and a about a brother. His name is Pete, and the the book starts off where everybody else seems to know what's going on, but you don't, and you have to follow along as they reminisce on the circumstances that led up to his death. And the circumstances that led up to his death, when I say that, that's with as broad a definition as you can imagine, because they talk about their lives, they talk about what's happening in the world, they talk about other family members, and and they go, everything just seems to sort of tie in, and then the common thread linking it is they're coming to terms with his death. By the time you do get to the book, and this is not a terrible you know horrible spoiler, you realize that what happened is that he was killed by his wife's lover, and beyond behind that story, there's also his in his past before he got married, there was an unrequited love of his life that very much influenced even his decision to get married and and pretty much is is also another very strong theme in the book as well. And the love of his life, mind you, was a, a cousin of his. Not even a first cousin. This was like a third cousin or something. Yeah, they weren't closely related, but they were raised as siblings. They were raised as siblings, yes. And and there's this there's a very West Indian thing where the, the whole cousin thing matters a great deal. <laughs> where people who, if they do know of themselves as third cousins, just, just don't really think of of going out in that kind of way. I don't know if we have a heightened sense of, you know, don't cross the streams because we have a smaller gene pool to deal with or something. <laughs> but but there there is a very much a strong sense that if somebody's ready in your family, um, they are family. So so yes, that's that is that is a story. That is completely the plot. The rest of it, there is a so a very slow, very quiet apocalypse happening in the background. You have rising sea levels, you have yeah, hard rain. and It's, it's set in the future. In the, the very future. near future. So, um, mm-hmm. I think Pete was born in the late 90s. 
something like that. It, it starts off with with them as um, reminiscing as teenagers, Pete and and Tramadol. That's his that's his cousin, and she was sixteen in twenty fourteen. Was it? Uh, so that that pretty yeah. much sets it. Yeah, the first date given is October twenty fourth, twenty fourteen. Yes, when mm-hmm. they were teenagers. Yes, yes. So so it's it's a very it's a very near future. And you have, as I said, rising sea levels, hole in the ozone layer, and and various various things being referenced that remind you that the world is changing rapidly in ways that are not comfortable. But there's also a flip side of of hope in the sense that there's the, there's a prospective moon colony uh, collaboration between the Americans and the Chinese. There's a space hospital. There's um, AIDS has been cured. The common cold has not. <laughs> um, and, and there are various shifts of, of political power and of global influence in terms of which country is a superpower and, and, and what countries no longer have much influence. And it's, it's all talked about very much in the background, sometimes even casually, but in a way that to me is still very powerful for uh, strengthening some of the themes of the story as well. So you have big and small, domestic and global, mundane and transcendent, and, and it all comes together. It's, it's a village tale because a family, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a large extended family in this village. That's the core of the tale. But there's also the tale of the immigrant because Pete at one stage goes to the U.S. One of the sisters, Evangeline, she goes to the U.K., and there are references to various relatives scattered as far as Dubai and so forth. And it, it's all, it all just comes together in a way still that's very intimate because they're also talking about their grief. They're also talking about the loss of someone who was close to them and how it changed their lives. And um, yeah, that's, that's about it. That's the summary. Yeah, in some ways it's a really... It's a, it's a, it's a very mainstream tale in a way because mm-hmm. I, it's, it's the story of a family who's united by grief and all dealing with it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, should we talk about... Well, actually, let me... T- I don't think I've read a story recently that so much foregrounds the unreliable or shifting narrator. Um, when you say foregrounds, what do you mean? Well, I... Okay, so the very first thing that, that happens, you get this introduction, and Mitch, uh, Micheline, mm-hmm. she's obviously an author. Uh, she, you know, mentions that uh, you know her family's looks at her sideways and is like, "Oh, you're you're the teller of lies," sort of person. <laughs> yes, um, and she's the one who is sort of the driving force. Um, putting together the material in this book, you know, talking yes. with her mother, talking with her sisters. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a bit where she talks about, um, I humbly thank my sister Beatrice and my sister Evangeline for their trust in me. Their f- stories are here faithfully set down as they gave them to me. Um, I also, I thank also my mother Seraphine for the family history she told us on the front step, shelling peas or in the kitchen stirring pone. These histories helped me to stitch together the parts that happened before I was born. Then she points, she talks about, she's also picking up stuff from Pete's diaries, and uh, yes. everyone's a little, uh, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she points out that Evangeline didn't write her story herself, gave me permission to write it for her, and didn't ask to see it before I published it. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. And then... Um, 
Yeah, and, and Beatrice's chapter especially, um, did you notice how much the, um, the pronouns were shifting? Sometimes it was I and sometimes it was she. And it was shifting yes, all it over was. the place. Yes, it was. And so that to me, just between the opening chapter where Mitch is telling you that this is all coming through a filter, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know, which is her, and and that she's you know running you know the almost the gatekeeper between her sister's voices and Pete and and what this text is, mm-hmm. and then Beatrice's chapter where. You, again, you shift fluidly from first to third person, which makes you wonder how much is Beatrice and how much is Mitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that it it, it just was something that uh, was was surprising to me. No, was it, it was surprising to you that she almost warned you in the very in the introductory bit, as it were, or was it surprised to you in the actual actual execution of it? It was the execution. I liked the the introduction. Um, quite a bit and it, it did set me up to to accept it when it was happening but really it was the shift it was the fluid shift between set first and third person that I found mm-hmm. most intriguing because usually you know if you have an unreliable narrator you still have a consistent narrator if you know what I mean in other words they're almost trying to trick you they're exactly. not they're not making it blatant that they're, the narrator so unreliable right, right now this is what I find fascinating because when I look at that I go right back to the Rainmaker's mistake. In, in the Rainmaker's mistake, you have the same situation. You have several people telling the story, several different angles, um, several unreliable narrators in a sense. And it's, it's handled in, in a way that, that reminds me of, well, it, it reminds one of the sense of the storyteller tradition or the oral tradition. But it's a collaborative oral tradition. This particular, this particular story. See, I guess I, I didn't. It didn't put me in that mind at all. Because in the Rainmaker's Mistake, within each chapter, the voice is mm-hmm. consistent. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So that, but but it only happened for one person in Ghost. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah, because Evangeline's chapter, and then the final chapter, and and my the one that's a soft spot in my heart, which is Peaches. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, they all, yeah, and Pete's chapter even, although Pete has a break between stuff that, um, stuff that Mitch seemed to find out through reading Pete's diaries and then stuff that she found out through other people's memories of Tramadol. Right. And, and not only that, because, uh, sorry, this is a sorry, slight digression, but the interesting thing about Pete's section as well is that it's also very much Tramadol story. As it's she hears a Tramadol story than his. Frankly. Exactly, exactly. Because he's so I don't want to use the word obsessed, that sounds kinda of bad. Not not creepy obsessed, but he's he's so focused on her mm-hmm. that it almost makes sense that it is more her story than his that comes out through his diaries. And that's what Mitch chooses to focus on when she tells it. Although oh, whose chapter is it when we find out that his diaries, once he got married, became very, very uh the sign of somebody having mental issues. Um, no, sorry. Could you say that again? Because I'm not sure I got that. Um, so I forget which chapter it is that we find out that once Pete got married, um, yes. his, his diary entries became very erratic and, and possibly disturbed. Um, disturbed. I, I don't know if disturbed is the word I would use. I think probably, yes, obsessive. 
I know that definitely became a concern for his wife because his wife then realized, no, 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 you're not over this girl at all. <laughs> and and um, and that that was where where the the concern was. I don't think they they thought he was incapable of functioning. No, no, saying. no, not at right. all. Mm-hmm. So that's why I didn't think of it as an obsession to the point of creepiness, but more, right. but more, more like he, she became the focus of his life in many ways. And, and it was so, I find, I'm sorry, I find myself drifting in this because it's definitely something I want to discuss. But before we get there, what you were saying about the narration, just to come to complete that, to close it off. I also want to point out that the other similarity with ghosts and with Rainmaker's mistake and with the middle holster is that you get this sense of a framing where somebody comes in at the beginning and says, here is my story. And this is what it's going to be about. And, and maybe even who's telling it. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that fascinating kind of across, I was going to say across the ages. It's, it's not such a terrible thing to say because Middle Holzer is of one era. Broadbur is of, of, is extending over eras and, and Forbes is contemporary, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I just, I just want to point that out. But yes, Tramadol's story in a few, in a very few pages, not as few as Peaches, and I know you're going to talk about Peaches because you definitely love that bit. <laughs> but Tramadol's story was absolutely fascinating for me because what it did is, you know, Pete is observing this, and also you get some input from um, some of Pete's sisters who also talked to Tramadol, especially she was older. But you get her going from a a sort of a gawky, unattractive teenager who overnight kind of settles into her skin and grows in the right places and becomes beautiful and has to deal with all this attention from, from, from boys that just didn't happen before is completely oblivious for quite some time to, to her cousin's crush on her and who is herself fixated not on boys, but on the ideal of love. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, her, her, her sort of segment, her chapter, whatever you want to call it, takes us right through to her death. But before her death, it takes us through um, her, because she gets married. She gets married to somebody who is not Pete, <laughs> which, is, which is a very big deal. <laughs> because the interesting thing about it is that she completely loves him, but you don't quite get the impression that he is as much in love with her. I almost got the sense that he saw her very much as, you know, yes, I'm, I'm pretty lucky here, and yes, she's a prize. But she had found the answer to her all-consuming love in him. And, and she was content with that, even though in a way perhaps she recognized that he didn't have that level of, of attraction to her. Yeah, it did seem an odd relationship the way it was depicted. Yeah, but, but he died. Right, after only seven years of marriage. Seven years. But, you know, seven blissful years for her. And she, they mentioned they, they were living and he was, he was Jamaican as well. Jamaican, hear me. Jarakandan. The, the <laughs> fictional island that they're on is not called Jamaica, although mentally I think of it as Jamaica yeah, because that's clearly what to. it's based on. <laughs> um, but they both come from the same island, but they're, they're both in the States. They, they get married and they live there. And, and that's where he dies. And she continues living there for a while as well. Um, and up to, up to her death, yes. And she keeps a room of clocks. She collects these clocks. And there's this sense of her measuring the time that she has with him in a way, mm. which I found very, very poignant. It's as if, okay, I've, I've found the answer 
to this thing I was striving for for so long, and now the only thing I have to worry about is when it's going to be taken away from me. But there's also a... Um, the, the whole chapter is not treated... Uh, what's the word I want? It's not over-romanticized. Exactly, yes. It's, it's, there's still a, a very practical sense running through it that I found in all these stories. You know, between mm. Rayburn in, in The Middle Holzer and, and everyone in, in Rainmaker's Mistake, um, you know, she, she functions perfectly well before she meets the love of her life. She functions perfectly well while she's married. Uh, yes. She functions <laughs> perfectly well after she's, you know, after, he's, <laughs> after she's a widow as well. Yes, you know, this is yes. not the sort of thing that you're going to pine away and die over. And I wonder mm. if, if that's a... It's also a big contrast over, of course, the way Pete... Uh, the way his his character arc goes. That's very true. That's very true. And and um, it says something perhaps about not only about Tramadol's res- resilience, but also about the resilience that the women of that culture are expected to have. Mm. It's almost as if there's a, a level of luxury to this sort of grand gesture. Right, right, yeah. That is, it that feels is not encouraged. Self-indulgent. Yes, exactly, exactly. Now, what I found fascinating was that after her husband's death, the next big change, quite literally, for Tramadol is when she goes through menopause. Right. And she goes through a very difficult menopause. Now, I speak only for myself, but I, have, I cannot recall ever reading in literature a depiction of menopause. Um, doesn't Nalo treat it in uh, New Moon's Arms? I haven't read New Moon's Arms. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And actually Um, also, um, Elizabeth Moon does, uh, does a bit of it in Remnant Population, which by the way is my favorite Elizabeth Moon novel. Okay. 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 Well, there you go. See, I'm, I'm already, um, expanding my, my reading list. (laughs) (laughs) But, but it is. Much like when we talked about Ted Chang's story of your life, and I was saying I've complained so much about there not being mothers in fiction, in science fiction, and here's one that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that just because it's done occasionally doesn't mean it's not rare. Yes, it's it's uncommon, and it's funny because literature loves adolescence. Oh, it loves yeah. adolescence as as you know, your, your world is changing and you are changing and, and, and you will change the world and everything else about it. But literature doesn't love menopause as much. I mean, I don't know if it's, it's too much of a hint of, yep, this is all going downhill and the next thing after the fourth <laughs> is your death. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't dwell on it as much and it doesn't... What I liked about the way it was treated in, in Ghosts is that it was also treated in a very practical way. Even just the throwaway line where she's asking the sisters and asking other women for advice. And she finds out that for some, they barely notice it. Yeah. You know, they hardly have any symptoms. It's, it's just, it just sort of, you know, one day your period stop and, you know, that's, that's sort of it. It's kind of thing. And then there are others who, for whom it's difficult. And hers is just a particularly difficult one where she, she goes through... It's almost a symbolic kind of, of trial of fire in some ways because she, the way she talks about the blood is because she's experiencing some uncontrollable, very heavy periods, which is, of course, another symptom of menopause. And the way she talks about the blood is, 
is almost as compelling as the earlier times when she is talking about um, going th- when she when not not when she's talking about but when Pete is observing her going through her adolescence mm. and having these sort of pangs almost physical pangs when some love affair she just had didn't work out the way she'd hoped and he describes her as sort of like lying on the bed and, and almost you can almost see like her, her bones moving because she's in so much agony mm-hmm. and I thought to myself this is this is really a very compelling character she's she's the things that are happening to her just are are so I don't want to quite say broadcast because again we just discussed how practical she was that she functions she functions but that doesn't mean she doesn't suffer greatly she suffers deeply she suffers in a very pragmatic way in the sense that she doesn't let it overcome her but she doesn't there's nothing belittling or minimizing how much she does suffer. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I just, I found that bit just very, very compelling. Well, through her, through her whole chapters, I mean, blood really is a, a symbol pretty heavily there. I mean, she's, her profession in America is also a phlebotomist. Yes, yes, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> that really jumped out at me. I was like, oh, Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that is true. Huh. And um, well, I should mention the the way that she dies is a little odd. It's ambiguous. Basically, she drowns. She drowns in the tub. But and the the consensus, according to medical opinion, autopsy, or what have you, is that her lungs did not have in water. So they believe that she had a, an aneurysm or stroke or something and died before she slipped under the water. Right. But Pete becomes convinced that she drowned herself because she was grieving for her husband so much. Right. But the, from what we get from Mitch's projection of Tramadol's state of mind, Mitch pretty obviously does not believe Tramadol kills herself. Exactly. Exactly. And yes, yes. But I, I found it. But as you said, again, you know, if, if the, the women are encouraged to be pragmatic, the men are encouraged to be a little less than pragmatic at times and are more excused for it. And Pete does take on the sense of, of more drama for yeah, her in a sense. Yeah, the, the drama is largely centered on, on Pete, although then, then we'll get to Evangeline in a bit. Yes, yes. But I noticed that Pete's, or the mother, the matriarch of the family, her relationship with Pete is just totally different than her relationship oh, with her daughters. yes. Oh, yes. So that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. But let me hear you say some more about it. I, I, want, to, I want to know your perspective on that. Well, and especially because, again, you know you're getting all of this filtered through Mitch and her sisters. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you can tell. They're like, oh, she would, you know, she would put up with my, way more from him than she would from any, you know, any of the daughters. And, mm-hmm. um, and they also felt that she... I, I got the impression that they felt that she just, that she, the matriarch, was getting kind of melodramatic over over Pete's different, um, how do you say, adventures. I mean, the way she completely rejected his wife once he finally did get married mm-hmm. and could barely be convinced to, to be civil to, to the wife, or well, not to the wife at all, but to the uh, grandkids. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that that was fascinating because it's it's a there's a definite cultural aspect to that. 
I'm not saying it's across the board uh, to the region or even across the board to, I don't know, particular segments of society or whatever. But the concept of the the mother-son relationship where the son is always a favored boy mm-hmm. and gets away with more. But the girls are the ones who are brought up in a very practical way who have to fend for themselves in a certain extent, who are held to a higher standard yeah. for a lot of things. That that is that is very much that's very much the case. I say I say that the reason why I say not across the board is because I do think that is partly a general generational thing as well. Mm. Where you could say more in the shall we say prior to the seventies, for example, you would have had a lot more of that. The boy children get in the way of a lot, and the girl children the ones who have to kind of stay home and be quiet and polite and, and do their chores and all sort of thing. Yeah, they're, so, they're obviously past that. <laughs> well, well, it, you say obviously, but remember this is set in the near future. So right, there's right. definitely an aspect of they haven't got rid of that yet. <laughs> and and they're all, But at the same time, the mother also has very high expectations and in a sense is very protective of her sons. So... I did see her reaction, her bad reaction to Pete's wife as being part of that protectiveness where she has certain expectations for the kind of woman he would marry and the kind of children he would produce because he's the one who's carrying on the family name, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And he disappoints her completely oh, on that absolutely. level. But she flips it by saying not so much that he's disappointed her, but that the wife has somehow entrapped him or bewitched him or taken advantage of him in some way mm-hmm. so that she doesn't have to, to blame her son for it. She can blame the stranger. Right, right, which is not uncommon in mothers-in-law, just sort of universally, <laughs> frankly. It's not my son's fault. It's that woman. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Although, so we should, say, we should say something about Pete's wife. Because she's not exactly... Uh, oh, she, yeah, she, she's, she's a not, problem. <laughs> whew, you can kind of see anybody would be like, oh, gosh, this is not going to go smoothly. Um, she's had, <laughs> am I right saying seven or five, five or seven children by different, all different fathers? Something like that, yes. I kind of lost count myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then obviously there's a suspicion that once she and uh, Pete have a kid that, that the, the son is not actually his. Exactly. And there's a suspicion, which does in fact end up being true, that after they get married, she continues to see other men. Mm-hmm. Now, we should point out, uh, Tramadol is, you know, Pete's love and so forth, is portrayed as somebody who is, is very beautiful and very, very compelling in various ways. But the woman that Pete chooses to marry after Tramadol is sort of lost to him by marriage and has sort of made it clear because she makes it clear after her husband dies that she's not going to look at Pete that way. Pete, Pete is her like her brother, and mm-hmm. she always views Pete as her brother. She doesn't change that, even though I don't even think that he actually makes a declaration to her, does he? I don't believe so. So she continues to to act oblivious, regardless as to whether in the back of her mind, because we don't have any direct evidence from her right. that she was aware of this. We only have, as you say, um, Mitch's filtering through various people's stories and Pete's diary, what they think was going through Tramadol's head about all this. But at some point, he begins to realize she's a widow, but she's still not going to look at me as any more than a brother. So he, he comes home and he tries to get on with his life. 
And part of getting on with his life is he takes out this problem that both he and Tramadol have been living with. And this problem is the question of love. The question of love for him was like a bridge where two people come and meet in the middle. But for Tramadol, it was you go right across and you go to that person. It's complete sacrifice on your part. That's how she. That's how she was with her husband. Although that's again, how without, she found- without the melodrama that often comes with that concept. <laughs> exactly. That's a good point. Without the melodrama, without the melodrama, in a very pragmatic but still in a very complete way, that was the way that she viewed her love with her husband, and that was what made her content. So he begins to think, well, maybe Tramadol had the right idea. Maybe instead of always looking for somebody to meet me halfway, I have to just commit. I have to just do this. And in a way, he chooses his wife almost like almost like a punishment. Yeah, yeah, man. He did not make it easy on himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, because this is an older woman who's got, as you say, five or seven children kind of lined up behind her. She's, she's, she's not attractive, She's, uh, she's actually somebody who, because of not being attractive, has turned to promiscuity as a way to build up her self-esteem. Presumably, yep. And, you know, she has all these issues. She has all these problems. But he has decided this is the person with whom he is going to uh, spend the rest of his life, focus, commit. You know, the situation of Tramadol is not going to turn out the way he wants it to. He has to find a different definition or approach to love and and that's that's what happens so of course his mother's like what (laughs) yeah yeah and and you can't blame her i mean it's like watching a train wreck yes yes so so yeah that bit was it was interesting and it was interesting partly because yes a lot of it ends up being the sisters as well looking in and seeing how pete is dealing with it because Everybody, it seems, with Tramadol knows about Pete's crush on Tramadol. So yes. the sisters know what he's trying to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's also a case of looking, as you say, at how the mother deals with it. And as you say, her rejection of the wife is one thing, but her rejection of what is supposed to be Pete's son, but there are doubts because of the wife's behavior, is, is in a way slightly heartbreaking well, it, if I'm not mistaken, the way I read it, she she couldn't reject the grandson altogether. Yes. Like, even her heart was like, it's it's a child. Exactly. It's a child. <laughs> but, but there was still this sense but yeah, of... Yeah, there was definitely a sense of... Uh... <laughs> Like like well like a like a cuckoo in a way. Somebody else has been right, laying eggs right. in your nest and now you have to be responsible for them and you feel somewhat cheated. So so yes, you had all that. And then of course Pete's death would have hit her particularly hard because what happens is that he ends up fighting, com- confronting, discovering his wife with another man. And the the lover, his wife's lover, pulls a knife. And, and and stabs him. The wife runs off. Her One of her daughters, by the way, his, his stepdaughter, witnesses this, by the way. Mm-hmm. And she's there with him as he dies. And then there's not even any proper sense of justice because the, 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 the daughter who witnesses this, she 
changes her story. She changes her story to the police. She keeps changing her story. And she and the way it's, it's told by, by the sisters, by Mitch, is that she does this on purpose to make herself an unreliable witness. But it's also because she's torn, because she knows that to tell the story as it is will also implicate her mother. And she's already lost. She, you do get the impression that she did have a good father-daughter relationship with Pete. Yeah, so, or at least that it was probably the most positive relationship of her exactly. troubled life to that point. Exactly. So she's already had him basically dying in her arms. And now she has a situation where is she to tell the truth and and have and lose her mother as well? So it becomes a situation where she just she just chooses to just keep changing the story. Right. So the police don't even call and, her as a witness. So, so you have you have this ambiguous ending where the village talks about it. Uh, nobody, nobody's brought to justice. No, nobody goes to prison for anything. Well, and, but they're and just I guess talk- the the story that that basically becomes the matter of law is is that it was almost some sort of drug deal gone wrong or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, so you, and, you get and that just rubs salt in the wound for Mitch and her family. Right, because. Again, you get the impression that their family had a certain standing and there is an element of jealousy isn't the right word, but there's a kind of gossip that loves to attach itself to people who maybe looked as if they were giving themselves ears previously. Mm, mm-hmm. So if you so if you have a family, you know, an extended family and, and they're they've come up from hard times and they're reasonably prosperous and, and, and their children are doing well and so forth. And then something scandalous happens. Gossip really kind of goes, ah, yes, you know, they thought they were so great. Well, look at this. Right, you know? right. So, so there's, there's definitely that element of it, it taints all of them. And, and they feel, they feel that, that Pete's memory has been tainted, that, that there's so many things have gone wrong and it's, it's all because of an outsider. So his mother takes it very hard. The sisters take it hard as well. And there's there's just this, this huge trying to come to terms with things. And we should have referenced the title. The title is Ghosts. And the uh-huh. title is Ghosts because there are, in fact, ghosts yes, in yes. the whole there, story. There are other speculative elements in, in the in story <laughs> aside from simply it being set in the near future. Yes. So you have, first of all, uh, their mother sees the ghosts of of African women, of, of slave women. And we should also point out that the very first thing in the introduction is is Mitch going through a sort of capsule family history. Their their family names are Pointy and Morris, mm-hmm. which are, you know, Scottish and, and English or and possibly French. And and well, you know, they're a mixture of of all over and and that you definitely have to understand that casting a bit of a shadow. Yes, over yes. the whole thing, and and there's a sense of ties as well because the whole point is that they they're the ancestral ghosts in a way that are referenced, and then you have ghosts who just pop up. Tramadol's husband comes to to see her after mm-hmm. he has died, which is also treated in a very practical and pragmatic yeah, yeah, way. It's like he's just checking in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and this and she actually says to him, "Have you come to me because I'm going to die soon?" And he kind of looks at her reproachfully, like, "Yeah, like, come oh. on, <laughs> can I just come and say hi to you?" <laughs> and and so you you do get also this element of 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 people just popping in. And Pete, after he is killed, 
does come and and see i think he co- appears to at least two of the sisters i believe uh, so one of one of whom reacts quite badly and and who's like you know <laughs> get away from me kind of thing and and another one who just says oh how are you doing and he says oh not too bad but you know if i listened to some of you i wouldn't be here now right right <laughs> and that's that's just so casual you know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then at the end, there's the end is is very is very moving because they have a kind of a memorial service for him, where after I, you almost get the impression it's after they've all told their stories and had their catharsis, they go and have this memorial service for him, and and they sort of see him standing in the distance. Well, some of them see the figure in the distance and perceive it as being Pete. Right. Others just see a, a figure in the distance. But given how many ghosts have been happily trotting through the story, we're, we're quite happy to say that it's Pete as well. Yeah, yeah. So and then there, so you, there are some elements that could be metaphorical or could be surreal or could be slipstream. Um, when Tramadol's going through adolescence, there are a couple passages that could be read as her actually shape-shifting. Yes, and that is referenced later on when she's going through menopause as well. Yeah. Which is inter- they talk about... Um, you know, millennium of women sort of like their bones writhing under her skin and so forth. So again, there's always this ancestral tie. As you said, the blood is important. The sense that you're carrying more than your own being under your skin Mm -hmm. is also a recurring theme. And yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And Pete's Pete's grave too. Pete's grave. The lake, yes, yes. Uh, the, yeah, that one, uh, that one just struck me because it, it, it feels like a, yeah, like a very slipstream image. It's almost, there's a sense of boundaries into another world, let's mm. put it that way. But also the sense of, because what, what was it exactly happened? The, the lake flooded and, no, help me out here. Help me out here. I'm drawing a blank. Um, I, it was, again, it, it's ambiguous. You could read it a few ways, but... Um, one one way you could read it is is that basically the tears of the mourners at his funeral caused a lake that prevented people from really uh, visiting him after. Yes. Yes. And 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 that basically their own grief kind of caused a boundary or a breakage. Oh, now that's cool. I didn't think of that. See. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I could see that. Uh, yes. But yeah, there, there definitely with the with the near future and rising waters, global climate change. There, there are other ways to read that definitely. But that was the way that struck me. Yes, yes. Actually, let's talk about some of the the sci-fi elements because we we were discussing a little bit of it earlier. Some of them we thought were a little unvalicious, <laughs> and and others we thought were a bit subtle. Um, I just want to mention one of my favorites: the chapter with Beatrice. Uh-huh. Which which very much has rain as a motif. Oh yeah. That's when they talk about people going to live on high ground because the seawater is sea levels are rising and it's become dangerous to live on the coast. But there's also there's there's a lot of rain, like the extreme rain, you should call it extreme rain events. Now another thing that was in there which you may or may not have noticed, did you notice the snails? Yeah, yeah. I gotta tell you about those snails. Yeah, what's up? Those those snails are real. (laughs) (laughs) Let me see what happened with those snails. Actually, Um, let me me see if I can't find the passage that because I believe it starts Beatrice's uh, passage. Let's see. 
Uh, it's been raining like this for two days, as if the sky has suffered a great wound and with it a weight pressing down an unbearable urge to void its contents. The yard is waterlogged. Black moss grows up the sides of the stone flower pots in the house. Weeds and flowers have flourished rankly in the downpour so that the yard looks wild, abandoned, as if no one except the snails has lived there for a long time. The snails are everywhere, though seemingly invisible except in the brief lull between one downpour and the next. Um, and yeah, it goes on about the snails. <laughs> and that, to me, was one of the more terrifying passages in the book. <clears throat> really? Why? That didn't strike me that way. It wouldn't strike you that way and, and, unless you had actually encountered them. The, the giant African snail is an invasive species to this region. Oh. And prior to, what? Prior to maybe about 2000 or so? I can't remember exactly. They're, they're, all we would have are these nice little gray striped snails that you would see about the place. Not a big problem. Yes, they'd eat your plants occasionally, but you could keep them under control. A um, few other snail species, like in some of the forested areas and so forth. But these snails came over, as, as invasive species tend to do, via ships. They're right, probably some cargo or something. Yeah. And the problem with these snails is they are the equivalent of ugly tribbles. Oh. They are, they are, they are um, hermaphroditic and they are born pregnant. Oh, jeez. Yes. <laughs> and when you kill them, their reaction is to spray out their seed. So you pretty much have to kill them by dropping them into salt water, or but if you smash them, you pretty much just cause a whole bunch more to respawn. Yeah. How big do they (laughs) get? If you let them live, which I don't recommend, Uh they could get bigger in your hand. Oh wow! Yeah, they're pretty creepy. I I absolutely detest them, and they are precisely as are described in the book, in the sense that. There will be a dry spell and it will feel like, oh, I can actually forget these things exist. And then the rain will come and a whole bunch will come out. Do you remember when there was, we had a tropical storm a couple of years ago, was it? Was it, like, it was a 2010? Um, Thomas. And we had a fair amount of wind and a fair amount of rain. And after the storm, it was as if it had blown away the, the, the snails. You honestly did not see snails for a long time. But remember what I told you, when they are endangered, when they feel danger, when they're under stress, they spread out their seed. Uh-huh. So even though the, the storm may have caused them to go underground, which is where they go, or even killed off some of them, the point is that about a week or two afterwards, there was a population explosion of snails. Oh. And the only way I can describe it, that, that chapter, that paragraph that you read, you stopped short of the bit where she's talking about basically like a, uh, almost like an army of snails just yeah, sort of marching yeah. along. This is not untrue. Exactly. This is yeah. not untrue because a friend of mine, we were dropping her home. And as we turned into the yard, she said, kill as many snails as you can. And at first I was going to say, what are you talking about? And then the moment we, we came into the road, because she has like a little track road, uh-huh. you just heard like fireworks. Crunch, 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 crunch. Just, the snails were blanketing the road to the point where when the, the car tires were going over them, you just heard the shells popping like, like popcorn. And I was like, oh my God, I was so freaked out. Now that was, that was just after the storm. It kind of stabilized a bit after that. But it can happen. So when I read that, it was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, wow. I can okay. see this. 
Let me tell you, that did not hit me that way. <laughs> and I'm sorry I have now given you nightmares. But yes. <laughs> Although, oh my goodness. In the new house, I'm recording from a new house, which we just moved into last week. And this house is a little older, and oh, we've got a lot more um, native wildlife here. Ooh. <laughs> I, I sympathize. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wee! Yes. So okay. Speaking of things that, that didn't hit me the same way, let, maybe we should talk about the language. Mmm. Okay. Let me, let me say a little bit about my reaction because this book has a uh, you know dialect in it. Um, not all the dialogue is in dialect, but a lot of it is. And the way I read this book, I read the first quarter of it back in my old house. And then I had to put it put it down while I was moving, and then just about a week ago, I I um I picked it back up and I decided to just start fresh from the beginning. When I read that first quarter, uh, basically I read Tramadol's story, and I told Karen I was like, "Oh man, this is hard going. I'm I'm kind of <laughs> having trouble." Uh, the only way I was even making it through was was the the echoes of having um, had conversations with Nala Hopkinson, um, <laughs> because her her accent and the rhythm when she speaks fit very well with the act with the dialect that um was being written however when i picked it up the second time apparently my brain some somewhere in my hind brain had been working on it and <laughs> i read it very smoothly after that mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um and the funny thing is i did the same thing with um the canterbury tales when i decided <laughs> a few years ago to read the canterbury tales i decided to read it in middle english and what i did is i got a norton anthology that had um, that was basically very very heavily annotated, and for the mm -hmm. first few few tales, it was like learning to read again. I had to <laughs> say it out loud, and I was referencing every single yeah. You know, it seemed like every other word with the footnotes. Mm -hmm. By the middle of the book, I was actually just reading it. Um, yes. I'd gotten used to the vocabulary. I'd gotten used to the the rhythm of the language. And this is when I was in my mid to late twenties. And I would tell you I am horrible at languages, but once I got into the rhythm of it, I actually remember the last tales as if they were just English. As and, if they were just English, yeah. And I was I was talking to Karen that I really liked Peach's chapter, which is only a few pages, and. Um, was so vivid. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh man, it really stands She's a character. Out. She's completely a character. And Karen, you pointed out you were you were like, "Wait, but that's the one that's heaviest in dialect." And I was like, "Really?" <laughs> Cuz I just don't I don't remember it that way anymore. Yeah, yeah. And and Peaches Peaches is um Peaches is interesting not only because hers is the shortest bit. Literally 3 pages. Oh yeah, just 3. That's it. But she's a very vivid character. And what she kind of highlights for me is that all of these sisters are so very, very different in how they have approached life and what they've done with their lives and how they've approached relationships. You have, uh, you have um, and, and when I say different, I'm, I'm talking different in some very fundamental ways. Peaches, for example, discusses how, you know, she has, she has children she has a man, but she doesn't let the man live in her house because no, that that's no good. <laughs> she she needs control of her life. You don't you don't do that. You don't bring a man in your house. <laughs> and and the way she says it is so 
you know, there's no question of, oh, well, you know, society says, no, no, no. She's got her life worked out. Yeah, this yeah. This is the way she handles it, and this is what works for her. Um, she, she discusses her sister Evangeline. Evangeline is, is the mystic of the family. She is, she's highly religious. And, and <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm just, first... I've, I've got the book in front of me. I don't like the one Evangeline either, for she too holy, holy. <laughs> yes! Exactly. To love treat the rest of us like we's her children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very, very blunt, very, very direct. And yet, you know from the whole book that these sisters are so close-knit, they would do anything for each other. So you, you, get, you get some very... You get some huge differences in in beliefs, in in in, in way of life, in, in, in style, so many things. Attitude, but but there's there's so much a family. There's so much a family. They're completely there for each other, and it's it just it just it's just amazing to me. But yeah, Peaches Peaches was an incredible character to me, really, and and Peaches. You get the impression that out of all the stories being told, Peach's story was the one where Michelin said, you know what? I am not even editing this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and Peaches isn't even meant, and she's not kidding. Peaches actually says, Mitch, don't say anything about me, so let me introduce myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mitch hadn't even mentioned her in the introduction. Oh, boy. I don't know if, 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 if Peaches is the equivalent of the, the black sheep of the family because of her very strong convictions and unorthodox way of dealing with things. <laughs> but you do get the impression that, you know, she's not somebody who could be persuaded to, you know, to tone it down or anything like that. <laughs> she, just, she just has her opinion and she sticks by it and, and that's it. And she, and she is the epitome of pragmatic. She yeah, really is. Yeah, well, but on the other hand, she's also so fiery. I mean, she's the one who stood up in court and basically just yelled at them. They're like, she's like, look, you can't believe any of this stuff. The, you know, this is what really <laughs> happened. Yes, yes. She's, she's the truth teller. Oh, I almost forgot to tell you. I almost forgot to tell you. I know I kept on saying to you, if you came across something that you didn't understand, to let me know. Uh-huh. But you never did come back to me. And I was like... Is she sure she's got everything like this? But there was there was one phrase, there was one statement that I know that when I first heard it, I completely got the wrong impression of it, and I had to have it explained to me. But there's an expression called a Warner woman. Oh, okay, you're right. I didn't I didn't totally understand what that was. I just kind of assumed from context. Well, warn, Warner in this situation literally is from the, the verb to warn, mm-hmm. as, it, as in to, you know, warn somebody that something is coming. So it's a sort of a word for a prophet, a Warner woman. Okay. That's, that's all I had to tell you. I just, I just remembered that as we were talking about peaches and the dialects and so forth. Okay. Um, okay, so should we talk about Evangeline? Oh, Evangeline. Because it kind of had to leave her for last, even though her story kind of comes last as well. Yeah, yeah. She's... Um, and, and Mitch even, Mitch admits it, and Peach, Peach points it out, you know, Evangeline takes up a good chunk of this story. Evangeline is... <clears throat> well, they had to go back to her birth. That's how bad it was. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, the, and the birth story was just crazy. <laughs> Is it bad that I laughed when they told the event what happened to the doctor? Is is that oh, bad? Yeah. Of me? You you better tell that one. I, I'm not sure I should. Oh, I'm gonna laugh. Okay, so so the mother was eventually in the her very first child. 
Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Evangeline's the oldest. Her mother was in her last trimester of pregnancy, but she decided to travel with her sister. And she thought she had plenty of time because she was only in the seventh month. But Evangeline decided to show up seven weeks early while her mother was on a plane in international airspace. <laughs> and, and you know, so they, they go through the whole description and, oh, my God, I can so feel her pain. Um, <laughs> you know, of, all, of like the passengers trying to stay calm, but they're also trying to look. And, yes, there's a doctor on the plane and he's, he's helping. And, and, you know, she just starts swearing a blue streak. <laughs> yes. You know, they're making an emergency landing and, and and so Evangeline actually did was born in the air. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also she had a citizenship question. You know, her parents were obviously Jacarandan, but um, you know No, hold on, you're not gonna gloss over the best bit of that story, are you? Well you, okay, you you go for it. <laughs> no, the bit that I'm laughing extremely inappropriately at is that at one stage, okay, um, mothers right. is so much pain. I over that. <laughs> I know. I, no, everybody's going to hate me. I'm sorry. I have to say this. I laughed. She basically grabs hold of the doctor's face and she tears it. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he, he ends up with a kind of a, a grinning scar after he gets stitched up, of course. Right, right. But... Yeah, so he's there trying to keep her calm and, you know, push and whatever. And, and, and she just holds on to his, his, his face and his lip as she tears open his face. And, and the reason why I'm laughing, I do have to explain this or else I will never live this down, <laughs> is that when you're reading it, it really reads very normally at first. You know, yes, here's this international, here's this flight, they're in international airspace, and, and you're reading it, and everything seems perfectly normal. And then all of a sudden, you get this bit where she's like randomly ripping his face into shreds, and you're like, oh, sorry, not shreds, that's an exaggeration. No, but, you know, but yeah, and ripping it, it, it too. And it hits you really hard. And if there's, I'm sorry, if there's one thing that's very strange about my culture that some North Americans may not get is that, um, one of the reactions to um, things that are very traumatic or very upsetting is to laugh. <laughs> so I am not laughing because I think this was a pleasant thing to happen to the poor doctor, but because it was such a shock. Okay. When you're when you're reading what appears to be a very normal story of an unfortunate, you know, pregnancy situation, you know, but hey, these things happen, and oh, sorry, it had to happen to her with her very first child and so forth. And, you know, the, the, the whole joke about, you know, the, the, the labor pains causing the mother to be swearing, all of that is all par for the course. You're, you're accustomed to that. That's almost part of the trope. But then this sudden picture comes out that's not part of the trope at all, and you're like, <gasps> and you get a shock. And my reaction is to that. The, man, let me tell you, women in labor causing extreme damage to people and things, that is, that's totally real. So, um, so whose who's finger bones did you break? <laughs> okay, I actually, well, I had a very, very, actually, my whole pregnancy up to the moment that Gavin was actually delivered was as drama-free as you could hope for. It was after that that all the drama happened. Um, but there was a friend of mine. Her husband is, I'm not kidding, he's six foot ten and built like a linebacker. And mm-hmm. she's like, you know, she's an, a normal-sized woman. She's awesome. Um, they've got five kids. When they were... When they were delivering her first, she broke his um, his hand. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I I read that and I was just like, yeah, I can kind of see how that would happen. 
Ooh. Okay, so this is one element that you may think is slipstream or you may think is just symbolic, but you know, Karen Burnham is there to tell you that it could happen. <laughs> Again, you know, it's it's that one step farther more exaggerated, but I was like, no, I can totally see that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I better move on. I'm still feeling embarrassed I'm laughing so hard at this. <clears throat> okay, right. But, so, so if Evangeline had very... citizenship. Right, right. So then there was a whole question of where is she a citizen? And they finally decided she was born just over the line from U.S. airspace to international airspace. So she she had citizenship in the registry nation of the plane, and it was British Airways. Yes. yes. So <laughs> dual Jacarandan and U.K. citizenship. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And she, in fact, goes to live in the U.K. for some time. And has, well, Evangeline's story is the immigrant story. One of the things that I noticed about ghosts and that I appreciated about ghosts is that it does, in a way, give a nod to some of the standards of Caribbean literature. There's the growing up in the village of family literature standard. There's the going away to, a, to, to the UK immigrant experience um, standard. So... Those two are dealt with, and I'm sorry, I should take it a little further back. Even the reference to the ancestral ghosts, to the, to the African women um, seen by her mother, even that is a, is a sort of another literature standard, the, the plantation, um, the slave narrative story. So you, you do get these things being woven in <clears throat> to this very contemporary, um, very near future modern story. And she... I should point out the bit where Evangeline re- decides to return from the UK, decides to come back to Jarakanda, and her mother's initial reaction is, oh my goodness, she's gone bad. Because she comes off in this outlandish outfit. Yeah. Which is, well, it's an outfit of symbols, basically. It's an outfit symbolizing what she's come to learn about herself spiritually and, and culturally and in terms of her, both her her genetic and her cultural heritage and she's she's put all that together symbolically into this outfit but to somebody just looking at her it looks like she's just dressed in a crazy like a crazy woman mm-hmm. we do actually have a well i don't want to quite call it tradition or but let's call it a stereotype of the immigrant who returns from the uk and is considered slightly mad Yes. I should give some background to that, shouldn't I? Yeah. So, so just, I shouldn't just drop that there. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not quite sure what to, what to do with that one. <laughs> In the sense that, okay, this, this is... Hmm. Just trying to find a way to express this. In many ways, the, the people who go, went to the UK in the 50s and 60s and so forth... They, what they had was a severe cultural shock. They would have grown up in the West Indies being told that they were British, being uh, educated in a British system, learning British history. That would have been all their identity. They were recruited by British companies after the Second World War because of, there was a severe shortage of labor. And they went with the idea to sort of render service to the mother country. That would have been the context that they would have 
by, by which they would have, have gone to the UK. So in a way, it was not so much of a emigration as it was just moving to another part of the country you thought you belonged to and you moved to another part of empire. Mm-hmm. That made any sense? Yeah. But then when they got there, the reality was that, you know, there, a lot of them worked, for example, in, in, the, in the health service and so forth. And my, I had, um, there was an aunt who was in, who worked as a nurse. And, you know, there are tales of, there, there are stories of things like, you know, people looking under their skirts to see if they had tails and, and stuff like that. Oh, for, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so there's, there's this, you're not just treated as a foreigner. You're not just treated as, as, as alien. You're treated almost as subhuman. So they, they came up with that. And, and that was that was a sufficiently traumatic experience that even now, and I've actually, I've got the articles for this, so if anybody wants to challenge me, I can give you references. <laughs> but even now, there is a, a higher incidence of, of schizophrenia in um, West Indians in the UK than is, than is the case for West Indians in, West, in the West Indies. Huh. Wow. And it's, it's, it's supposed to be a sort of a... a <laughs> this is going to get me in trouble. It's slightly a mental health hazard to live in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> you spent time, though, studying and, and working in the UK. How did you find it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mental health hazard? Um, okay, uh, in for a penny, in for a pound. <laughs> appropriate statement there. Um, I love Scotland. I love Scotland. We we bonded over, um, <laughs> you know, sort of saying nasty things about the English and their colonizing ways. <laughs> and and the the funny thing about Scotland, which I did not expect, is that there is uh, an astonishing amount of Celtic culture in Barbadian culture. Huh. Partly because, of course, a lot of the indentured servants who would oh, have been right, working right. along with the slaves were from Scotland and Ireland. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And that's why even the Barbadian dialect <clears throat> has some parallels with the with Scots language. The um, there are there are, there are actually some words that we use that are common, hmm. and and there are similarities in the in the what's the word I'm looking for? It so, it sounds slightly similar. Okay. Sounds slightly similar. I say slightly similar because even before I ever went to Scotland, sometimes when I was in Canada and so forth, people were like, oh, you sound as if you're from Scotland. And I was like, well, never been there. <laughs> and, and then when I did live there for a year in Glasgow, it took me all of, what, two weeks to just be talking in a Glaswegian accent. <laughs> Partly for survival, because I didn't understand you otherwise. Right, but, right. But it was, just, it was just sufficiently close to what I was already accustomed to hearing at home. So, um, so yes, I, it's not the situation where you can say across the board about the UK, oh, it's like this. Mm-hmm. But there's also no denying that there are particular cities and particular areas in, in cities where the experience is not positive, it's not the best, it's not optimal. It's better than it was in the 50s, obviously. Obviously. But it's not, um, it's, it's, it's something that, you need to be aware of. And I, I say this I say this very quietly because there is a friend of mine who lives in Manchester who studied, I think, in Florida. And from her point of view, Manchester is a breeze compared to Florida. 
Oh, fair enough. Okay. So, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not playing any kind of competition here for anybody to point at the British and say, "Aha, you guys are the bad guys." Because you know, come on, people different places have had different experiences, and, and you know, you can you can have horrible experiences in various places. Right. Right. So I, I, I'm not using this podcast to 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 point fingers at any particular country but in the context of Evangeline and her experience it does become very important because she does have experiences which do um, challenge her identity as British because that is supposed to have been one of her identities mm-hmm. but she is challenged as 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 um, you know people do not consider her as British and she, she receives a lot of um, blows to her sense of identity for that and the whole act of her coming back home up, up supposedly dressed like a mad woman does in fact have, have some connection to her identity being challenged while she's in the UK. Fair to enough, some of those yeah. experiences that she had. So Evangeline, she is a, she's a prophet in some ways. Right, she's she kind is, of a seer. She's a seer. She's deeply religious. People people go to her a lot. She is considered. She's she's almost. I, I said to you if that she's almost like a nun, but not of any particular Orthodox Church structure. Mm-hmm. Right. She and, doesn't have any children of her own. Exactly, and and people do tend to confide in her a lot. She she does become almost like a confessor. Right. To quite a lot of people, and she has an interesting, very interesting. And this is this was the Anvilicious one. This was the Anvilicious symbolic sci-fi thing that we we weren't quite sure what to to do with this thing. Are we getting? But to, are we getting to the, the last chapter now? We're getting to the child. Yes. Okay. Because <laughs> I should point out <laughs> that speaking of this book striking us differently, on the whole, Ghost kind of ended up not totally working for me, mm-hmm. and the. It, there are a lot of parts of it I appreciate, and I hope that's come through in this podcast, mm-hmm. but a lot of it comes down to the last chapter, and a lot of it comes down to the fact that while there are bits in it that I appreciate, nothing ever really tied it all together for me, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a lot of that comes down to the last chapter, where if where we kind of leave the Pete and Tramadol storyline behind, and there's this dwarf child um, mm-hmm. who is, um, it's, and it, it becomes very science fictional. He requires a large amount of medical intervention to live. He doesn't have skin in the normal sense of skin. Um, uh, he, he, was, he was basically born, born without, not only born without skin, but born without even genetic indicators for skin. Right. In a way. Right. Yeah. No genetic indicators for gender, um, He's, he's almost a little post-human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Evangeline ends up caring for him. Yes. Uh, he can only um, communicate through technological means. And he's the one who is actually going to be going to the space hospital to get treatment, where they're going to pretty much provide him with a skin. Right. And he, he really, you know, he's a kid. He wants to be, he wants to be like other kids. Mm-hmm. Um... But yeah, when th- this chapter felt to me like it kind of came out of the blue and that it didn't necessarily tie well with what had come before. And mm-hmm. um, 
and there it felt like this poor kid was la- loaded down with so much symbolism. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. He was sort of yeah. burdened while he was just trying to be a kid. Um, mm-hmm. The and and so I I found the whole story. Well, where <clears throat> in the place I was looking for the key to tie all these other things together, instead we got this this whole different it went off in a whole different angle, which I think was particularly fascinating for you. It was, it was fascinating for me, but it was also challenging for me. And what kind of helped me in a way to reconcile myself to it was I remembered my experience trying to read Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury so many, many years ago. And I had so much difficulty with it. And yet, years later, when I was... reminiscing about a favorite short story by Braid Bradbury and I couldn't find a short story no matter how I you know googled snippets and so on and then when I finally found out what it was it was a chapter or a couple of chapters in Dandelion Wine so it was a situation where there was almost like a, a full mini story within the larger story and Dandelion Wine is is a kind of a, a summer in a boy's life where he begins to understand more about, you know, about life and death. And, and, and it just, it's, it's just, it's very much a, a coming, a sort of a, a miniature coming of age thing mm-hmm. where, where things change for how he, how he perceives things over the summer. And I knew that there was a lot of it I was missing because there was this portrayal of sort of suburban or small town or what have you, America, that, I was missing a lot of references for. So the things that other people would have been reading and finding very evocative, I was just reading and thinking, okay, but why are you dwelling on that? And then there was this, as I said, this, this, one, or, this one or two chapters that stood out and impacted me in some way, and then it kind of went back to not really, <laughs> not really clicking with me. So I thought about that, and then I, I looked at what was being done with this, this as you say, this highly symbolic child. And I realized in a way that that ghost does remind me to a certain extent of dandelion wine and ghosts could impact a reader in a similar way mm. in the sense that there's there are references that I'm getting because of, of knowing the West Indian culture and history. And there are things that are going to be particularly evocative for me that are going to pull up a sense of nostalgia or a sense of, of, of fittingness that is going to be completely missed by a reader who does not have that kind of cultural reference. Mm-hmm. So um, when, I, when I thought of it that way, uh, I, I looked again at what was happening with the child, and, and it wasn't even so much that the child existed. It was just that I thought a lot of time was spent getting into the child's mind, you know, watching how the child interacted with other children, having a whole mishaps occur, the child is playing. I mean, there was just so much focus. And I was like... Why is there all this attention? So then I stepped back a bit from the story to try and see where it fitted into the larger story, just as you were saying. And it struck me that although you get, as we say, kind of supernatural elements, science fictional elements, you actually get the most, quote unquote, truly science fictional elements in that last chapter. That's oh, the chapter hey. that talks a little about. Go on. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm having a revelation. Um, Go on. Evangeline, uh, a, a strong current through her character is uh, healing. 
Yes. Um, yeah, she's she's been interested in herbs since she was a, a little girl, and she was going to study medicine, and then she went more the religious route. Um, when when we move into the dwarf child chapter, we leave Pete and Tramadol behind on purpose because. Yes. We're finally getting to a place of healing. Evangeline's not healing just, and closure. Yes. Yeah. Evangeline's yes. not just healing the dwarf child. The dwarf child, by its existence, is helping the family heal and yes. move into the future. And Evangeline's yes. kind of the midwife for that. And oh, and and that's why the story has to be set in the future, so that you can have this little post-human who's helping yes. heal the hurts, not just from Pete and Tramadol, but also from all the family history and the ancestral and the ghost women who were slaves and all of it. Oh. <laughs> now I get okay, it. Okay, yeah, just take a little words out of my mouth, why don't you? <laughs> yeah, pretty much that was what I was going to say. Um, if you look at the arc of the story, if the beginning feels almost like it's still sad in the past, even though some references are made in the future. Yeah, yeah. The middle is the one where you understand you're in the future, but it seems to be gray. They're talking about things like the rain and the rising sea levels and the hole in the ozone yeah, layer. Yeah, some things are better, some things are worse, you know. And, but, you're, but you're feeling like, you know, this is a very uncertain future. But then the final bit is the bit that does look to the future, that does, you know, the space hospital and this child going to be healed. And, and, and the child, Evangeline, is interesting because Evangeline is not, strictly speaking, a mother. Mm-hmm. But... She is mothering this child. Mm-hmm. This child is really hers. And the child, the child, they don't even know really who the child's parents are. Right, they don't this, really know where the child is from, frankly. Exactly. The child is a foundling. And, and there's this whole element, as you say, probably weighted with almost too much significance. But there really is this element of um, this, is, this is still a child that's part of the family. And as you say, this is the, the child helps them move into the future. And it's very soon after that that you do have the memorial service repeat. Right, where people can finally move on, move forward. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, okay. Now I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It is, this is probably, it's kind of funny. I did think the Rainmaker's mistake was going to be more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. But I but found the, more the, I found the key goals, for, for reading it, so... That's right, because you saw the science fictional bit straight off. Well, at least I found the science fictional bit and why it all made sense at the end. Sorry. Right, Sorry. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but ghosts, I think, will be appreciated even more by those who go for more purely literary tales. Yeah, yeah. Because the science fictional aspects, the supernatural aspects, they are secondary. Which, is, which I think is a legitimate use of it. I don't think that kicks it out of the genre, if, mm, if you're mm-hmm. saying. Because they're very much used to strengthen the various um, motifs that are running through the story. So they are, they are essential to the, to the story. You couldn't just lift it, off, lift it up and put it down somewhere else. It, they have to be there. But if you are the kind of person who doesn't really like SF, you can kind of wink and pretend they're not there as well. Well, that until sense. that last chapter, in which case you're kind of smacked up inside the head with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But, but even then, it's still done in a way that I think people find more accessible. I've, I've found, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've found that even people who don't like science fiction, when you present them with near-future stuff, when you present them with science fictional 
um, aspects which are more about the human being. So if, if you're talking about advanced medical technology, for example, or if you're talking about something which is already present, but just a little further advanced. So you have the internet, but we're downloading colors from the internet, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because there's this, there's this really, I'll, I'll tell you where I freaked out. There's this really funny, but almost out of left field scene where Evangeline is, is talking to Mitch. It's, it's Mitch she's talking to, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and she hears screaming, the dwarf child is screaming, and she rushes to see what's happened. And he's basically been, been playing on the internet, trying to imagine when the doctors would give him his new skin, yeah. what it looked like. So he's downloading colors from the internet, but it's gone wrong, and he's turned himself indigo. Yeah, he's turned himself blue. <laughs> And he's like, no, I don't want to be blue. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and I thought that I was, I was, I was actually shocked for a moment because I remember after having read Ghost, I did an interview and somebody said, and somebody asked me whether there were aspects in, in my book that were taken from folklore or whatever. And I started to stutter because I was like, yes, I thought I made up this idea of somebody who was, you know, with, with, with blue skin and who then, in fact, turns into a child who has colorless skin. But I've just read a book which has sort of the same thing, but in reverse. So what? <laughs> I'll be tapping into that goes before that that I completely forgot about. So huh. it's, it's, very, it's very frightening in a way sometimes when, well, this happens all the time as, you know, as a writer, where you think, even something quite casual, you think that you've just plucked it out of nowhere. And then you read, read it again completely in, in somebody else's work, and you're like... <gasps> What, what what did I do? And, but you know, according to the time that you wrote it and the time it was published, that you didn't have any influence on each other, but it just happens. Right, my, right, yeah. My, um, my, my classic example of that is there's a, there's a spate of books. There's a spate, that's the wrong term. There's a, a, a group of books that involve time travel, romance, poets, and, and cyborgs? No. But at least time travel romance poets. <laughs> I do not understand why it happened. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Uh-huh. Um, Tim Power that's um D- uh, Douglas Adams. Tim Sorry. Powers, um the, the Anubis the Anubis, Anubis Gates. Gates. And um Hyperion. <laughs> right by Dan Simmons. <laughs> yes. And they've all got, you know, sort of like time travel aspects and and, and romance poets. I'm like how did this happen? Did they go to the, did they go to the same workshop? Did they, yeah. did they just say, hey guys, you know, let's have a prompt or something. I'm a little blocked today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but these, these things happen and they can be really random. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, anyway, by the way, sorry. speaking of, of slightly random, the, uh, the last chapter of Ghosts, have you ever read uh, Jeff Ryman's Air or have not have? No, and the thing is, that's that's a small bear press book, isn't it? I believe so, and it is brilliant, and it is awesome, and it also has this thing that happens at the end that makes everyone go, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, literally, everybody I know, and I believe it won the Clark Award that year, and I've talked to people, and... And we all are like, yeah, oh my god, that was the most brilliant story written that year, except for that one bit at the end where we all went, what the fuck? (laughs) But these are the bits that I wish that when you do get the chance to interview the author, that you can say, okay, really, 
What did you mean to do Well, that? people have asked Jeff that, and he basically has said it seemed like the thing to do at the time. <laughs> this makes perfect sense to me. Sometimes you don't know. So right. So and, and, um, yeah, in the, when I did the, the Science Fiction Foundation Masterclass in London in 2008, uh, Jeff was one of the teachers, and we weren't reading Air, but we read Child Garden as part of a, a different part of the workshop, and, um, and he, he asked if he could sit in on the discussion, and we were like, sure. And he just... He's six foot eight or six foot ten, but he kind of curled himself up in the back of the room and tried to be unobtrusive, which uh-huh. is really hard when you're six foot eight or ten. Um, and and we all went through and we were talking about this and that and the other and and um, and finally, you know, we got to the end of the discussion and the and the workshop leader, which is Dr. Wendy Pearson. She turned to Jeff and said, so, you know, we'd been talking one particular aspect of Child Garden, and she turned to Jeff and said, so what were you thinking? You know, what was your purpose by including this aspect? And he got this most, the most adorable, helpless look on his face. <laughs> and he literally was like, it just felt right. <laughs> <laughs> but and I, Jeff is, I understand Jeff is awesome. that. I, I really do understand that because, you know, so many times... When you are, when you're in the middle of crafting a story, you are not thinking like a critic. You're not thinking, oh, well, you know, I better have this bit because it's going to strengthen the foreshadowing and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you might, if you're lucky, do a bit of that in the rewrites where you've seen the shape of the story and then you know what you need to do to kind of like, you know, plump things up a bit. But half the time you're just sort of like, yeah, yeah, this is what's coming out of my subconscious right now, and I trust my subconscious, so I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> and, and sometimes you look back and you're kind of like, well, you know, that was weird, but, but, but I can't think of putting anything else in its place, so it stays. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just felt right. Yeah, that's yeah, my and, and I, I suspect Dwarf Child might have come out, out <laughs> of that kind of impulse, is all I'm saying. And I, and I respect that because... They're, in a funny way, I find Dwarf Child almost as compelling as Tramadol. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. He or she is is, is absolutely in that category. And, and to tell the truth, I do see in Dwarf Child... Um, I'm so uh, surprised that they didn't give Dwarf Child a, a real name. But this was important, that, 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 that the child would not have a name. Because, because everything about the child was unconnected to anything mm. didn't it wasn't didn't partake of that same history right didn't didn't know who the parents were didn't know the genetic um the genetic heritage didn't know what the color of the skin should have been um although as Beatrice pointed out she was like raised by black people that, that kid's black <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 so so yeah you have um you have that that sense of of alias I think is the best term in a way where you can sort of fill this dwarf child with all of your hopes and dreams because, um, you know, he comes with, with no history. He comes with no name. He only goes to the future. Future right. is all he's about. He or she is a tabla rasa. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In, in every sense of the word. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> like I say, that poor kid just weighted down with so much symbolism. <laughs> Yes, but but I did see I did see the dwarf child as another kind of ghost. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Good point. Good point. 
especially in the sense of um, not a, not the kind of ghost that is actually the spirit of someone who has died, mm-hmm. but the kind of maybe let's say a, a spirit, even even slightly a trickster spirit, because somebody who is sent to like teach the people something right. that they didn't or they had to learn. Well, and and uh, Pete's kid, who became a musician. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, really, totally bonded with with dwarf child, dwarf child, which which I which I found significant in certain respects, especially when you consider how much his parentage was disputed. Right, right. Because the mother was so much invested in Pete, you know, having a particular type of wife and and having particular grandchildren, that you know you have, as I said, you have this sense of this is a child carrying on the name, but I don't know if they're really carrying on the legacy. So, so his son, or or maybe son, bonding with the child who has you know no background, no ancestors, no whatever. It 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 is kind of perfect. You you do get this sense of both of them just saying, look look forward to the future. The past mm-hmm. is too complicated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, are we going to do a wrap-up podcast in a couple weeks? I would like to do a wrap-up podcast, a, 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 and I would like license to ramble. I want to ramble. I want to ramble like 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 rambling has never done been yes, done before. Rambling like tumbleweed. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we could talk about everything. I'll probably we're probably going to end up tying it all together in some weird way. Possibly, it could happen. Stranger things. <laughs> yes okay but so... i have to say thank you so much for reading ghosts oh and you're... thank you for finding thank thank you for finding what you could appreciate in it <laughs> it took no, me a while, no, took me I, a while. Do, I don't i don't say that lightly because it's always fascinating to see um what people will take to and what they won't and then try to figure out why out of curiosity if you were to recommend Ghosts to someone, what kind of readership do you think it would most appeal to? Oh, again, I'm, I'm going for the literary. I'm going for the slipstream. I'm going for Kelly, Kelly Link readers. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. okay. Which, is, which is kind of the same as, as who I would recommend Rainmaker's Mistake to, but very different from whom I would recommend Middleholzer to. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. But yeah, seriously, for anyone out there who, who enjoys you know, Theodore Goss and, and Kelly Link and, and Jeff Ford, I think you'll find a lot to appreciate in Cradella Forbes. And I do want to say that if you do end up reading Ghosts and you want to make some comments on it, if you could come back to the SF Single Post and, and drop me a comment, because I'm really fascinated to see how um, non-West Indian readers approach this book. I really am. So I, I want to know your thoughts on it. Cool. Well, hopefully people will actually uh, seek it out. And again, mm-hmm. it's available from People Tree Press, and that's P-E-E-P-A-L. Tree. <laughs> and treepress.com. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just remember the first time you said it, I assumed it was um, P-E-O-P-L-E. Yes, and I keep forgetting you yeah, you got to be careful with that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and with that, we'll we'll sign off for this week, and we will be back in two weeks to to wrap things up for a while. Yes, it's been a blast. This Looking forward fun. to the wrap up. Yeah, cool. Okay, 